morning. Esther chapter 2. We'll look at the whole of the chapter. And I'm going to get us reading here. So let's read. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women who please the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shemeri, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jochanai, the king of Judah, who Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother had died, Mordecai took her as her own daughter. So when the king's orders, order of his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Hegai, Esther was also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food. And the seven chosen young women from the king's palace and and advanced her and her young women to the best palace in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court in the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shahaz Shagaz the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of uh, Abahel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had been her as his own daughter, to go in the king, to the, into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charged the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into the royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in the sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. The king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her 
kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to the queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. What is it that we value in this world? What do we place and hold value in? Uh, We know, I think certainly you're here today, that shows you place some value on your faith, what Christ has done for you. You place value on the redemption that he has purchased. Our faith is something that is important to us. But we also have a tendency to value the things of this world as well. We like to have nice things. We like to have cars and we like to have boats and homes and we like to have jobs that make us comfortable. We like the, wor- the things that this world has to offer us. And this is not always a bad thing for we know God created this world. He created all things in it. He has called it good. But what happens when the things of God and the things of this world, as it were, meet? What happens when we have a promotion coming up at work and we know that our boss is not a Christian? What happens when our faith conflicts with those who can affect our lives? What happens when our faith is in conflict with the enjoyment of this world? What happens when our faith means suffering? Will we compromise our faith for these things? Or do we say, I can straddle the fence. I can live in both worlds. Do we tell ourselves, just keep your head down. Let's be quiet. Just be cool. It'll all be be okay. What do we do when the empire begins to make demands of us? We saw last week the problem of Queen Vashti that terrible woman she was removed for her insolence and now the goal of the empire of the king of the empire the emperor is to find himself a new plaything so what are they looking for you would think uh, that that most importantly would be we need to find someone who's more compliant but we really don't see that here Uh, we see that they need someone who is young Unmarried and very good looking. The three qualities I looked for and found in a wife. (laughs) Right? Earning points. (laughs) And this was a competition you didn't have to apply for. You were drafted, as it were, into this uh, pool. Everyone who lived in the empire was included. It was a compulsion. This was the way of the empire. Everything in the empire was owned by the empire, and that included people. That included your body and your looks. And if the empire wanted it, the empire could take it. And the emperor, the king here, wanted a new living doll. So these women would be taken, they would put into seclusion for the rest of their lives. And even if they were rarely taken out to be played with. 
and really few would have resisted this summons. This would have been a good life for most of them. They'd have things to eat, they'd be comfortable, and really, not all that often would you be called on to do anything. Does this seem like an odd notion to us, us who value personal freedom so highly, so highly that we get ourselves in jobs that we slave away for so that we can be comfortable? Is it really freedom at all? As we come to our text this morning, as we consider these things, we're going to see three things. Mixed identity, mixed motives, and mixed allegiances. Mixed identity, mixed motives, and mixed allegiances. As we continue in the story of Esther, we're quickly introduced to new characters, Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai being the cousin of Esther. I believe that's right. Did I get that right? No, I got that wrong? Not cousin. Niece. 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 Yeah. What do we know about them? Mordecai is a descendant from Kish, the tribe of Benjamin. This is going to be something that's important later, but he's a second or third generation in exile. Uh, He's someone who has a long lineage back to Israel. But exile defined his existence. Both of them are identified as Jews, but we see here his name is Mordecai. This is a Hebrew version of a Babylonian name, Marduka, which contains the Babylonian god Marduk. He is literally named after a Babylonian god. Where does his allegiance lie? Many in exile had both Hebrew and Babylonian names. Need we forget Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Uh, Daniel even had a Babylonian name. Esther is similar. Her name uh, is actually Hadassah, which means myrtle. Uh, but she, her Persian name, her name in the empire was Esther, which means star. Uh, and may contain, it's not 100% sure if this is true or not, uh, the Babylonian god Ishtar in it. They are living between two worlds. They are bar- both Jews in exile, but they are also living as those in the empire. And they're going to have to make a decision on how they're going to live. But as we begin to look at Esther some more, as we get introduced to Esther, uh, we have to see this. I think the first lesson we can see here is that sin and disobedience have far-reaching consequences. They have a mixed identity, and why do they have a mixed identity? Why were they even in exile? Well, the sins of their fathers had caused them to be sent into exile. The disobedience of their fathers had brought them into exile. But not only this, it hadn't been that long since Cyrus said, hey, go home. If you want to, go home. What did Mordecai choose for his family? You know what? Things are pretty good here. We don't have to go and scrape out for a life. Things are good in the empire. Let's stay. The history of disobedience and sin left Esther and Mordecai in an advantageous situation, and yet it was also a potentially disastrous situation. 
On one hand, they have the luxury of the empires, but they are also under the will of the empire. Can we identify with this? If you notice here, even as Esther is going into this, this harem, she's under the direction of her uncle Mordecai. Hey, go in, don't say anything. Don't reveal your true identity, your nationality. Just put your head down, conform. Her family wanted her to conform. The empire around her wanted her to conform. Is it, is it even really that big of a deal that she hid her nationality? Is it really that big of a deal when we hide our faith to get a promotion? Is it really that big of a deal if we hide our faith to fit in with friends and peers? How often have we said something like this? Well, I'm just going to let the way I live be a testimony to my faith. Have you ever heard someone say that? I'm going to be a witness to just the way I live. And Now, is the way we live a testimony? Yes. But have we ever used that as an excuse to not say, no, that's wrong. And let me tell you why that's wrong. We all at times are tempted to put our head down and hide our faith. But here's the wonderful, beautiful truth behind all of this. Even though we sin and compromise, God is working out good for his people. And this is always true. Even as Mordecai and Esther and all the Jews in exile are living between two worlds, even as we at times are ourselves trying to straddle that line and the fence between two worlds, God is always working. But these two, these mixed identities meet one day. The two worlds collide one fateful morning. She, with many other women, are summoned to this citadel at Susa. Most would simply accept this as part of life. In fact, it, it could be taken as an insult to not be chosen, because if you're not chosen, it means you're not young, you're not pretty, and you're not attractive. <laughs> so to be passed over is almost like, oh, okay. My mom always told me I had character. I don't know what that means. It's a joke. You can laugh. be insulting in a way not to be, be chosen. And Esther was chosen quickly. We, we see how she was described. She was called beautiful, lovely to look at. And there was simply no point in arguing with the empire about it. You couldn't say, hey, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm just going to stay here. There was none of that. And even as Esther came into her new situation, she quickly learned how to act. She understood it was a pointless existence. That life was going to be regulated in all its details. And the best way to get on with life was to find those who regulated those details and make them happy. That's what she did. She went up to Haggai, Haggai, and whatever she said to do, he did. Or he said to do, she did. Got that backwards, sorry. But he was a eunuch, though, so maybe it's okay. That was a joke, too. Yeah, they're falling all, all falling flat today. So she won favor in the sight of Haggai. She fit the agenda the empire set for her. 
And in turn for this, she was rewarded. Her and six others, or seven others, uh, were given special treatment. They were given food, and they were given their uh, beauty treatments early. Uh, it was spa day for Esther, right? She got to go in, and she got her six months of oil of myrrh and six months of spices and ointment, and they were given food. And what was the point of giving them food? Well, these were commoners. You had to plump them up, right? Give them some food, make them look more attractive, fill out the figure, and so on and so forth. And this is what they did. And interestingly, we see here a very uh, contrasting uh, life with others who came into exile as well. well. What choice did people like Daniel and his friends make when the empire said, come and eat this food? No, it is against our religion to eat this food. We are going to, we would like and request that you allow us to eat our own diet. That was one instance where the empire let them. But Esther didn't seem to have that same problem. She willingly came in. She willingly ate the empire's food. She willingly became the emperor's plaything. And the whole time keeping her faith secret. And after a year, it was her turn to come before the emperor. I don't know if you noticed something here. I'm going to be somewhat uh, vague in a way. Do you notice that how after, before she goes in uh, to the king, she's in one harem. And after she goes into the king, she goes to a different harem. And she moves from the harem of uh, these young virgins to the harem of the concubines. Uh, there's something going on here that you can read under the subtext, I hope. And if not, ask your elder. Um, there's a point that's going on here. After this year, she goes in uh, to see the king. And she comes as the anti-Vashti. She succeeded in charming everyone to this point, and now she charms the emperor as well. She's a beautiful woman, she's compliant, and she's quickly promoted to queen. And the result of her being promoted to queen is goodness for everybody. Right? So he promotes her to queen, he gets tax relief for the empire. Oh, we could all use some tax relief, couldn't we? Gifts were given out Liberally, You can imagine as she's queen, and now all the people are like, this is a really good deal for us. God save the queen. She has brought us much goodness. Esther shows us a sweet and compliant spirit. And it's good on one, on one level to show respect and difference to authorities. But we also must understand that it is our responsibility as Christians to revolt at the unsanctified demands of the empire. We are far too often tempted to conceal our faith. We are far too often tempted to not confront those who need to hear the truth. We're far too tempted to avoid conflict at all costs. Because here's the reality. You know what? Sometimes the empire will say, yeah, eat your own diet. But more often than not, the empire is going to say, oh, that's, that's good. Fiery furnace. More often than not, they're going to say, lion's den. This is the result for standing up for your faith often. 
And so we have to, has to, have to ask ourselves this question. Is God worthy of such a sacrifice as this? To go into the furnace, to go into the den. At this point for Esther, she is putting her head down. She's going along with everything that is asked of her. Even the moving from one harem to the next. Is God worthy of such a sacrifice? The reality is this. The answer is yes, and we should gladly and joyfully be a sacrifice for this rather than bowing the knee to the idols of the empire. But guess what? Esther's history of compromise and sin does not mean God is done with her. Your history of compromise and sin does not mean God is done with you. She is going to be used to bring blessings on her people. God is sovereign even over our sinful choices and wasted opportunities. And this should cause us to give thanks to God. Who is sovereign over even our messes. He is able to make good even from our bad. Our third and final point is mixed allegiances. And, and we see in a very temporal way here in the story uh, a mixed allegiance. At this time, Mordecai was keeping a watchful eye over his niece. And he'd been advising her along the way. He was visiting the court daily, looking for information, passing on news to Esther. And as he's sitting there, as he's passing on information, <clears throat> he overhears a plot. Two eunuchs, Big Thin and Teresh, are going to <clears throat> conspire to kill the king, the emperor. And so Mordecai passes this information on to Esther, and Esther in turn passes this information on to the king in the name of Mordecai. There are these two <clears throat> eunuchs who have mixed allegiances. They're turning on their king. Mordecai, we're going to see here, his name is written in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. Uh, he's given reward for it. But I think we're also left with a question as well. Because while <clears throat> these two eunuchs are certainly conspiring, we see that Mordecai and Esther also have mixed allegiances. Where does their allegiance lie? And the reality is that the question is not yet answered for us. We're going to see very soon uh, that they're going to have to make a decision. Will they help their uh, nation or not? They've been given this position of authority. Will they help their nation or not? But I think more immediately, because we'll see that soon, more immediately we get to ask this question. What are we willing to put up with for the sake of the empire? What are we willing to put up with for the sake of the empire? What was Esther willing to put up with for the sake of the empire? Where do her allegiances truly lie? Because here, here's the reality. She was poked and prodded. She was fattened and fumigated. Uh, for this, all for the sake of the empire. 
so that she could be touted out as a living doll. I wish those were my words. I have to give credit to a commentator. I can't remember what commentator it was. But the fat and fumigated, I had to take it. It was so funny. <laughs> Unless you think I'm too clever. There are many around us that are willing to endure the same to get a good prize. Especially the prizes of this world. But here's the real question. Are you willing to endure God's beauty treatment that prepares you for Christ? Are you willing to endure God's beauty treatment for you that prepares you for, for Christ? It's the same question that Esther's going to have to answer. What are you willing to give up for the sake of God? Because God's claim on your life is absolute. He owns the whole of you. But he doesn't prepare us with oils and food. He prepares us with trials and tribulations. And when God brings them, how will we respond? Sadly, I think I, if I look at my own life, I know that when trials come, we swiftly tend to revolt against God. We don't like it when our will is not being done. But we have to understand that as we suffer, he is freeing us from reliance of the things of this world. We see Jesus once again stand in contrast to this king. Jesus, who took the form that was without beauty. Jesus, who is despised and rejected by those he came to save. Jesus, who now calls us to share in his suffering. Understanding what motivates Christ to pursue us. He doesn't look at us and go, well, aren't you pretty? Aren't you lovely? No. It's not anything in us. He loves us and gave himself for us. Are we so reluctant to give ourselves for him? To submit to whatever discipline and suffering he would have us undergo? The king rejoices when he finds his Esther queen, or Queen Esther. But Christ rejoices when he finds us as well. There's a call here, I believe, as even as we understand the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, to look forward to that heavenly banquet. When, when, when the emperor here finds his queen, what does he do? He gives a feast for all. When Christ comes for his bride, he gives a feast. The feast that is the antidote to all that affects us. Our hearts must be comforted by the knowledge of God's love for us. We are to be strengthened even as we await our final salvation. That does not mean that life is easy. And it doesn't mean that life for Esther in the empire is going to be easy. But we all come to a point where we have to ask ourselves, what world do we live in? And are we willing to give up the things of this world for the things of God?
As I used our three points this morning, and points or whatever, I don't like making points, but I always make them. We see kind of these, I went with this theme of mixed, mixed identity, mixed motives, mixed allegiances. And I like the word of, of using mixed because I feel like that marks my life. There are times certainly where I can look at my life, I look at high school and I go, I lived two worlds. I lived the world at home that took me to church and said, okay, we're going to do all these churchy things and we're going to do church things. And then I did the world at school with my friends where, uh, hey, we talk however we want, we say anything that we want, and if it's funny, it's okay. And I kept those two worlds apart. But I had to come to a point in my life where I said, who am I really? Am I this kid who goes to church, who people think is a good kid, who can answer all the churchy questions, who memorizes catechism and all this other kind of things? Or am I this other kid who my friends know, who may say a, a word I shouldn't say here and there, or maybe too far, too often, um, and joke about things I shouldn't joke about? Who am I? Who am I trying to please? And you feel, I felt that tension of both of these things. But we cannot allow ourselves to compromise our faith for this world. I think that might be the hardest thing that I have to communicate to my children. As, as I'm trying to teach them about the Bible and how we live in this world. That we cannot live in both of these realities. We cannot live in the world and also say that we're a Christian and follower of Christ. These two things far too often do not match up. And it's not something that just children struggle with. I have to tell myself that each and every day. There are things we want to accomplish. We want to protect and care for our families. We want to work hard. We want to earn a living. And these are good things, right? But if they ever take precedence over living for Christ, it becomes a problem. What if, if I sat here from the pulpit and said, you know what? What's most important for me right now is that I get a better home for my family. I get a better a standard of living for my family. And so I need to figure out whatever I need to do to make this church grow so that we can get more money in those plates back there. And if we get more money in the plates and I can more justify my salary, then y'all will give me a raise and we can get a bigger house and we get bigger things. But to do that, I'm going to have to compromise the truth of the gospel. I'm going to have to compromise what I believe is true to be more attractive to this world. The things of this world can never take precedence over the things of God. And if I ever do that, kick me out as fast as you can. We all struggle with mixed motives and mixed allegiances. We're all concerned with this empire that we live in. We deal with it on a daily basis. But our allegiance must always be to Christ. The one who came for those who were unlovely. The one who bought us out of death into life. The one who has represented in what we do here in a moment. Bled and was broken for you. Who took the wrath of your sinfulness on himself. 
That is where our allegiance lies. And everything else, no matter how good we think they may be, it simply does not matter. It doesn't. Are we to provide for our families? Yes. Are we to have homes that we live in? Yes. Is it good to take care of what God has given to us? Yes. But these things, like, have you been down I-20? Have you seen the grass, the dry grass that maybe someone flicked a cigarette butt out into? Have you seen it? That's what this whole world is like. It is but dry grass that will burn up and fade away. But Christ and God, as we see in Scripture, does not fade away. It is the only thing that is lasting. It is the only thing that endures. So we have to ask ourselves, where is our allegiance? Whom do we serve? What are we willing to give up for the one we serve? Are we willing to give up this world, to give up its riches and its pleasures for the sake of Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we feel the tension of Esther. We feel the world's, the strain of the world that she lives in. And Lord, we far too often make the same choice. Lord, would we understand the reality that we live in? Would we understand the only allegiance that matters? Would we give a ball for Christ? We ask in his holy name. Amen.